The Lord of Hosts will do battle for us. Behold his mighty hand. Father, move us. Spirit, lead us to a new place, to a new day. Father, move us. Spirit, what an amazing time we had last week in our birthday services and then our party in the evening. So much fun. There's 400 people here in the morning, almost 300 back to party in the evening. Um, on to year two. Let's make it even better. Uh, last night, we were at the Bulldog uh, tailgate, and so we had an absolute blast watching the dogs uh, really, really put a pounding on the Toledo Rockets. Uh, go dogs. And um, uh, last kind of housekeeping thing. Uh, small group signups, uh, a couple weeks ago, if you were one of the first few to kind of go online and sign up, we had some server issues. And so somewhere your sign up is lost in cyberspace. And so we want to uh, give you an opportunity either to go online today or uh, pull out the small group card you received on your way in. Um, and actually we got a picture here of some of the options for you guys to sign up. And, uh, and if you want to, we got pens, we've got an usher over here and an usher over there. And if you guys uh, need one or need to write one in, uh, they'll be happy during the next few moments here at the beginning of the teaching to uh, help you guys out. So, and then after you fill that out, you could just send it back and wave for Sarath over here, Brandon on that side. And uh, we'll start those this week. Really exciting. So just lift your hand if you need one of those. We begin a new series in the book of Exodus. One can only begin to understand Exodus in thinking of it as a chapter rather than a book in and of itself. Uh, it's chapter two in a five-chapter book called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so though we'll focus in on Exodus, it is to be seen as a continuation of Israel's story from Genesis moving forward uh, looking back at what happened at Genesis, but also looking forward to the eventual coming of Christ. I'm excited for what's going to do. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book in your Bible. Exodus chapter 1, it says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, uh, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The name Exodus, we actually get that from the Greek word, meaning way out or exit sign, okay? You've seen these before? That's Exodus, Way out, this way out, exit. They're leaving Egypt and going into something new. Uh, that's the Greek title, Exodus. Now, the Hebrews weren't as creative when they came up with the title for their books. Uh, the Hebrew uh, is actually just the first word of uh, the book, um, which would be, and the names. So this book is called in Hebrew, and the names. And the word and there is significant because, again, it's continuing what was taking place in Genesis. And uh, this book continues that story. Now, names are very, very significant in the book of Exodus. Lots of names are given, and they're all of 
everyday average people just like you and me. The only person who isn't actually named in the story is the only person that history would actually name, the Pharaoh. This is intentional. God names these no names, these normal everyday people, midwives, uh, Hebrew slaves, God names them. And the very person that is the main antagonist in the story, the main enemy, the main bad guy, his name's nowhere to be found in the scriptures. Now, the very person whose names are plastered on pyramids in Egypt uh, isn't found here in the Bible. This is very intentional. And in the narrative of Moses's, in, of in, of Moses's infancy, uh, all the heroes are women. It's beautiful. Look at verse eight. It says this. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Pharaoh has a problem. Uh, God had elevated Joseph many years before to second in command of all of Egypt. And through Joseph, Egypt became blessed. But several hundred years later, a new Pharaoh shows up. He's unnamed. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't care how Joseph brought God's blessing upon the people of Egypt. Now these Hebrews are overstaying their welcome. In the ancient Egyptian culture, all able-bodied men were given one month per year to work as a form of taxation to Pharaoh. That's how they built Egypt. That's how the pyramids were built. When that wasn't enough, they would move to slave labor. And the growing labor force that we see here, the Israelites expanding, is a good thing for Pharaoh, but it comes with a potential problem as well. He's not sure that if war breaks out, where are these Hebrews' loyalties? Are they gonna side with the enemy? Uh, their faith is a little bit different. In the Egyptian faith, Pharaoh was seen as a god. Well, the Hebrews, these, these Hebrew people living among them, they only serve one god. The, the Hebrew faith, was like oil in the water of the Egyptian faith. And so Pharaoh says, we gotta do something about these Hebrews. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh has three plans to get rid of these Hebrews. Plan A is I'm gonna work them to death. But the Bible tells us, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Plan A didn't work. And God often does this, right? And it's in the middle of our suffering. It's in the middle of our troubles and trials. It's, it's in the middle of those seasons of, can one more thing go wrong? Where God uses it to grow us, to multiply love in us. So he says, let's try plan B. Verse 15, the king of Egypt, again unnamed, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua. If you're looking for good Bible names to name your daughter, I don't suggest Pua. Uh, too many jokes on the playground for that one. Verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women, this is Pharaoh speaking to the midwives, during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. 
The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Plan B is to have the midwives execute the newborn males. The, girls, the, the girl Hebrew generation would then grow up, intermarry, water down the Hebrew identity, and become, uh, for all intents and purposes, Egyptians. Now, these midwives, Shifra and Pua, they're named. They're the real heroes in the story. And they're likely Egyptians. I think there's good evidence that these women are not Hebrews. A, they have direct access to Pharaoh. They're having a face-to-face conversation with the king of that world. And B, they're using Egyptian birthing practices. It says that when they're on the birthing stones, uh, birthing stones were these two stones where a woman would then stand on them and squat or stand and deliver children. Aren't you glad we don't live in ancient Egypt? Uh, This is an Egyptian practice, not a Hebrew practice, because it's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. So Pharaoh asked these women to kill the newborn boys. Now, there are two Hebrew words for to kill in the Old Testament. The first is muth, and it means to kill or have one executed to to put to death. And ratzach which means to murder or slay or kill. In Exodus, both words are used, but they're not necessarily interchangeable. Ratzak is the one where it's used when it says, thou shall not kill, right? The 10 commandments, we'll find that later in our story. Thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder, that's ratzak. Muth is the word used here in Exodus 1. It's referring to state-sponsored executions. He's saying, you are representing the state, Shifra and Pua. And so we are fighting a war here and you killing these newborn baby boys, that's a preemptive strike. You have the blessing of the state. He's he's asking these two women and thus the, the rest of the midwives to execute these newborn baby boys. But his plan doesn't work. Pharaoh goes up to the women. He's like, hey, what's the deal? I see baby boys all around. What are these Hebrews doing? And then they're like, sorry, sorry. These Hebrew women, they're vigorous. They pop them out like nothing. They're they're, they're popping babies out like with spitting sunflower seeds. And these women, they lied to Pharaoh's face. Uh, That's a capital punishment offense in ancient Egypt. You don't lie to Pharaoh. They lied They were dishonest. They deceived. Is this okay with God? There is an authority over them in Pharaoh. They disobeyed him. Was this godly? Because they could have just said, well, we have no other choice. It'll be safer for my family and me to just do it. I've got my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do. They could have justified it. That would have been the safer choice, but they transgressed the law in the name of love. It's similar to what Corey Ten Boom did, and many people did, during the Holocaust. And they would build false walls to hide Jewish people. So when the Nazis came knocking and they said, do you know where any Jews are? They would say no, and they would go and inspect the house, and they didn't see that it was a false wall. 
It was just built just to contain and hide as many Jewish people as possible. They lied. They transgressed the authority in the name of love. When we give our minds opportunity to rationalize, when we give our mind justifications for something that maybe we shouldn't do, but, it, but we're blessed by some authority, we can rationalize all kinds of stuff. It helps us sleep at night. If we're given justification so that we can sleep, we're capable of terrible actions. One of the most famous studies of obedience in psychology was carried out by Stanley Milgram uh, at the University of Yale. He conducted an experiment focusing on the conflict between obedience to authority and personal conscience. And in 1963, uh, that was when all the Nuremberg trials were happening. And all the Nazis were being on trial. And their justification for their atrocities was, I was just following orders. And so Stanley Milgram said, I want to see if that is just a unique thing to what happened in Nazi Germany. Or is that kind of evil? Are we capable of it as well? So Milgram selected participants for his experiment by a newspaper ad asking for male participants, and it was, it, was, it was painted as how people learn. It was a study on how people learn. They were paid $4.50 just for showing up. And at the beginning of the experiment, they were introduced to another participant. Uh, and they drew, the other participant was an actor. He was pretending. And they drew straws to determine their roles. One was going to be the learner. One was going to be the teacher. And the actor was always going to be the learner. And the participant was always going to be the teacher. It was fixed. And then the, the, they had this experimenter, a guy in a lab coat. Uh, and he was also an actor. Two rooms at the Yale Interaction Laboratory were used. One for the learner, and there was an electric chair there. And one for the teacher, an experimenter, and there was an electric shock generator. Uh, an electric shock generator. The learner was strapped into the, this chair with electrodes. And he was given a, a, a listing of word pairs. Uh, and they were going to test him. And he was ask, the teacher was going to ask the learner uh, to recall the partner or pair from the list of four possible choices. And the teacher is told to administer an electric shock each time the person got it wrong. Uh, increasing the level with each shock. There were 30 switches on the shock generator marked from 15 volts, slight shock, to uh, 450 volts, which could potentially be fatal. Now, the learner, the actor, gave mostly wrong answers intentionally. Uh, the teacher then would give him an electric shock. And of course, the actor on the other side was not harmed at all. But once they got to a certain level of shock, they started to add sound effects from the actor. And he would say things like, don't, I have a heart condition. Let me out of here. Uh, when they continued to shock them, every time they had a wrong answer, the cries of the actor would get more dramatic. And when the teacher then said, I'm not going to kill the guy. I'm not going to, what am I doing? The laboratory expert, the guy in the lab coat, he, he could only say four things. These are the four things that he could continue to help them continue doing the experiment. He said, please continue. Prod two, the experiment requires you to continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. You have no other choice but to continue. Those were the only four things that this, this guy in a lab coat could tell him. Here's a short clip 
of this experiment from 1963. Go ahead. You're going to get a shot, 180 volts. Oh. I can't stand the pain. Let me out of here. can't stand it. I'm not going to kill that man. Yeah? I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Walk, dance, truck, music. 375 volts. I think something's happened to that fall in there. I don't get no answer. He was hollering with less voltage. Can't you check in and see if he's all right, please? Once they hit 450 volts, the actor then went silent. With each increase in voltage, the agony of the learner made the teachers protest more. The teacher would say, I'm not going to do this. No, is he okay? Check on him. It made them protest more. It did not make them stop. It made them protest more, but it didn't make them stop. All it took for these normal everyday people to continue harming another human being was $4.50 and a person in a lab coat. When there is an authority figure to take the blame for us, I was just following orders. We can justify unspeakable things. They asked social scientists, before this experiment went on, they asked social scientists, uh, what percentage of people will take it all the way to 450 volts? To, to potential death. What percentage of people? The scientists all said one-tenth of one percent. They said one-tenth of one percent would have that capability to go all the way to 450 volts. You know what the results were? 65% of the participants took it all the way to 450 volts. 65%. And in fact, every participant went all the way up to 300. Every single one. What's that mean? It means that 60 to 70% of us would have been that teacher. Taking it all the way up to potentially kill the person. Shifra and Pua disobeyed and lied to Pharaoh. They risked their life to save children. These two brave, maybe Egyptian women would not have been in the 70%. Pharaoh accepted their lie. But does God? Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God blesses them. Because they didn't lie to save themselves, they lied to save others. God smiles with approval at their lies and deception. Is this making anybody else uncomfortable? Why was the midwife's lie acceptable to God? Because they lied for the love of others, not for the preservation of self. There are times when a rule may be broken in order to love others better. But if our focus tends on, well, how can I get away with rule breaking? If, if, if we go to that question, then it shows that our hearts are not fully submitted to Christ. If our mind is set on loving others, when we act out of that motivation, we will fulfill the intent of the law, even if we break the letter of the law. Make it your mission to love others as you love yourself and you will fulfill what God wants you to do. Love will always lead us to make the right decision. Now, there's a lot of disobedience against the law in this story, and it's all done with God's approval. Love leads the way. 
So what's, what's Pharaoh's plan C? Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew that is born, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now Pharaoh, he doesn't just order the midwives to murder the baby boys. He commands all of Egypt. If you're an Egyptian and you see a Hebrew baby boy, throw him into the Nile. Thus, what for the Egyptians is a life-giving force, the Nile River, is intended as an instrument of death for the Israelites. The significance of this act, both for Egypt's future destruction and Israel's future deliverance, cannot be overstated. Water will play a central role in bringing this struggle to a close. And in chapter 2, here's where we meet Moses. The menace and vile poison of Pharaoh's attempt at genocide yields to the story of the birth of an innocent child. It says this, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a, papy a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, this movie was made in 1956, so cut it some slack. Um, the word basket here is the word ark. As ark saved Noah from Genesis, an ark also saves Moses in Exodus. The theological connection between these two events is self-evident. One, Noah and Moses both are selected to forego a tragedy uh, or a tragic watery fate. Two, both are placed on an ark and carried to safety on the very body of water that brings destruction to others. And three, both are vehicles through whom God creates a new people for his own purposes. Furthermore, Moses' safe passage through the waters of the Nile not only looks back at the flood account in Genesis, but also looks forward to the Exodus account of crossing the sea on dry ground. Now, I can't imagine the pain of Moses' mother. Her, she is not named yet. She will be named later. Her name is Jochebed. I can't imagine the pain and anguish of being connected to this three-month-old baby boy and then to put him in a basket and send him in this river to watch him go. We'll talk about Moses' mom in a couple of weeks, but there is no doubt in my mind that she prayed and prayed and prayed for God to protect her baby. Verse 5, it says this, Then... Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants walking along the riverbank. Uh, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This was one of the Hebrew babies, she said. You can see God's hand here uh, preserving the life of Moses. And the princess of Egypt here interprets this as a gift of the Nile. The Nile is like a god to the Egyptians. It is the giver of life. And so here's this Egyptian princess uh, having some kind of ritual bathing experience um, with her deity. And then a new baby shows up. 
This is obviously a gift from the gods. How ironic that the very plan to rescue the infant from Pharaoh's decree, to take him as far away from, from Pharaoh's influence as possible, actually results in this baby being raised in Pharaoh's household. To put it another way, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh first brings death to Moses and then life. We see this often in scripture. The Lord shows his strength by meeting his people precisely in the depths and despair and working those very circumstances for ultimate good. You've probably seen it in your own life. You look back at something that happened where no good could possibly come out of it. And you look back in hindsight and you see, I got this out of that. I would have never known that. I would have never got that. I would have never known that person. Pharaoh wishes to counter God's plan by casting babies into the Nile. God saves Moses by casting him onto the Nile and bringing him to Pharaoh's front door. Truly the power of God is at work. And then, verse 7, Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby, nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Do you see what happened here? Miriam, Moses' sister is hiding downstream and she sees all this taking place. And so then she goes up to the princess of Egypt and says, uh, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew moms for her, for this baby? A wet nurse, someone who uh, can provide sustenance and, and food for this baby. Quick thinking, Miriam. So who does she go and get? Yochebed. Moses' mother, who just sent him down the Nile, thinking that she was never going to see him again. And now there's this amazing blessing where she gets to feed her baby boy at her breast for three years. She never thought she'd see him again. And, and on top of that, Pharaoh's going to pay her for doing it. It's amazing. Can you see the hand of God beginning to move amidst slavery and, and oppression? Pharaoh's own plans to bring the Hebrews slavery and death are now being used by God to move the Hebrews to freedom and to abundant life. Three things that stand out. Number one, God wants to use our weaknesses to show his glory. The heroes here, they're unnoticeables, right? They're Shifra and Pua, they're just midwives, but they saved countless lives by disobeying Pharaoh. Look at Paul's thorn, right? You see it in 2 Corinthians, he, he cries to God, three times I begged God to remove this thorn from me. And God said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. My grace is enough. Probably the things that you think disqualify you are the things that God wants to use in your life. What weakness in your own life could God potentially use to bring about his purposes? Number two, God can take care of our kids even when we can't. God hears your prayers about your kids. And even when you're not there to protect them, God is. Here's the crazy truth. And I, I, I've got two kids and this just blows my mind. God loves your kids more than you do. 
They're his kids. He's big enough to take care of them when you can't. When they're old and grown and they're making their own mistakes and you just want to go, go to your room. Let me tell you how to do this. God can take care of our kids. Maybe some of us need to hear that this morning. I want to invite Noe and the worship band to come up as we close with point number three is this. Breaking the law in the name of love is smiled upon by God. Let's go back to the Milgram experiment. There are other sources of authority in our lives that we give way too much power. Now, we may not have a pharaoh. It's not a Nazi with a gun, and it's not a guy in a lab coat. Who holds malevolent authority in your life, the power to influence you, and to violate your own conscience, rebel against that authority? Is it culture? Culture tells us certain things. And we are like, I just can't help it. We're justifying our own actions. Who holds the power of memory over you? Forgive them. Who holds the power of coercion over you? Refuse to follow and embrace the consequences. Who holds the power of temptation over you? Create space between them and you. And invite the support of healthy community. Some of us might think, man, I, I like to think of myself as a generous person, but I just can't. I just can't right now because of X, Y, and Z. That's playing the victim. That's passing the blame to the lab coat. But you're the one pressing the voltage. God calls us and moves us to a way of love that's not about acquiring more for ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. I don't want to be complicit. I don't want to just blame the authorities in my life that I've given power to. I don't want to just blame culture. Well, that's the way culture's going, so I guess it's fine. I'm stuck. No, no. I'm, I don't want to be complicit. What Pharaoh in your life have you handed authority over to that you need to rebel against in Jesus' name? It's worth it. The way of love is always worth it. God, I pray that you would help us to follow the way of love. I pray that you would help us to follow the way of Shifra and Pua. Two women who had every justifiable reason to just do what they were told and they rebelled. They broke the law in the name of love. God, I pray that we would be that kind of radical followers of Jesus as well. God, I pray that we would break whatever authorities we have placed in our lives to make the loving choice for the betterment of others. Not for the self-preservation of self, but God, for the, for the greater love, for the bringing of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we thank you for the ways in which you cared for the Hebrew people in the midst of slavery and oppression. And for those of us who are going through one of those seasons where it just feels like things can't go any worse, I pray, God, that they would find hope that the Nile rivers of their life, the things that are supposed to bring destruction, God, I pray that you would bring signs of life, that we would hear the tears of hope that Miriam saw with her brother Moses on the river. God, I pray that we would make the loving choice in our marriage. I pray that we'd make the loving choice 
with our children. I pray that we would make the loving choice in our culture. Change us from within, God. Free us from the things that bind us, the things that we have given power over to. And may we give soul power and authority of our lives. All of the closets that have, we've remained locked inside of us, God, will we give the keys only to you? And we open up everything to you and put it under your authority, God. Forgive us for the ways that we've claimed our own stamp on those, that those are ours. Forgive us for the ways that we've given culture and other things authority over the, how we make decisions. And I pray that we would make the decisions that reflect your heart, Jesus. The decisions that of sacrificial love like we see in you on the cross. We thank you for that, God. Let us go and do likewise. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name. Father, move us. Spirit, lead us to a new place, to a new day. Father, move us.